From the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki. Hello and welcome to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. Ron, we're honored as usual that you're joining us today. Regardless of whether you're listening live or to the archive of the show, I'm confident you'll be glad you joined us. If you don't gain some new knowledge during this hour, we have that double your money back guarantee. We'll refund double what it costs you to listen. We'll be taking a brief break from our series on financial literacy, which we kicked off with Sharon Lecter, although I'm hoping this show will also increase your financial literacy since we'll be focusing on tax strategies for year-end and ways to manage your income taxes. I'm just double-checking that we have our chat window up, just in case we do get some uh, questions or comments. I've started a tradition of using a quote to set the stage for the topic, so let me share one for today's show that I felt was appropriate. The only difference between death and taxes is that death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. This quote is from Will Rogers. He was an American cowboy, vaudeville performer, humorist, social commentator, and an actor. One of the world's best-known celebrities in the 1920s and 30s, in case that's before your time and you didn't know when Will Rogers was uh, best known. So let me just repeat the quote. only difference between death and taxes is that death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. There's actually another difference we'll talk about later in the show. I've recently been talking about the holy grail of working, saving, and investing. To keep it simple, let me define that holy grail as income for life. That's the goal of getting an education, working hard, saving, and investing wisely to build a portfolio that provides us income for life, the holy grail. Today, we'll talk about another aspect of achieving that holy grail, taxes. The downside of having income for life is you'll be paying taxes for life. So why not learn some techniques that can minimize the taxes and thus leave you with more after-tax income? Today, by the way, is November 24th, 2014. It's 9.02 a.m. here in Arizona, 11.02 a.m. on the East Coast, and 17.02 in continental Europe. It's the only day ever like it. We'll do everything possible to make it a great one. You're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. The show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m. in Arizona. Your local time may change, but our show time doesn't. And by the way, you changed your clocks recently, so that means your uh, time for this show has changed. Again, we're always at 9 o'clock in Arizona. Now, I certainly hope you can join us each time we air, but if you miss some shows like those I'll mention throughout this show, you'll want to re-listen to them. You can find them on the archive. Just go to wealthdna.com. US, where we list each of the shows, both upcoming and archived. Our sponsor today is BI Solutions Corp., a residential real estate fund in the Phoenix-Scottsdale area. We will touch on real, real estate investing during this show, their specialty. Now, the U.S. equity markets, after two very positive weeks, with the S&P 500 reaching seven new record highs, are off to a positive start. Could be another record high today. Asia was up pretty sharply in China, almost 2%. Europe is mixed, and Brazil is up. Now, the advantage of joining us for the live show is you get to ask questions or make comments, either using the chat window below the radio player, which I do recommend just because of the amount of material we try to cover in each show, and today is no exception. Lots of topics to cover. So the chat window is the best. You can call in. That number is at the top of the screen. Now, if you are uh, on the archived show, neither of those options will work. Trust me on that. Now, on the other hand, if you listen to the archive of the show, especially 10 or 20 years in the future, you'll have some history to see how what you hear on this show would have impacted your wealth accumulation. And will be interesting to get some of that feedback 10 or 20 years from now. I thought a good introduction to today's topic would be to share with you that I returned to the U.S. in 2007 as a tax refugee. Now, you may know some political refugees or people moved here for economic reasons, maybe even for starting a business, but there are very few tax refugees. Now, why do I say I'm a tax refugee? 
See, until 2007, I lived in Europe for 13 years and was running a private investment fund, a small angel capital fund. I had no plans to leave Europe for the next four to five years until, in 2006, Poland's government changed the tax law for foreigners. I won't go through all the details, but my taxes would have increased between five and tenfold. So my increases, my taxes would be up five or ten times as much as I was already paying, potentially having an effective tax rate over 100%. Again, a little bit longer story, but that gives you the basic idea. So I decided to stop investing my money in a country that doesn't want me to live there. Thus, I moved to the U.S. as a tax refugee. What's the key point you might want to get from that discussion? That despite the complications, a knowledgeable investor paying U.S. tax rates will be far better off than living in Europe or many other places in the world, at least up until now. Who knows what will happen in the future? And of course, with that, you realize we're talking about personal income taxes. Corporate taxes are a whole other story, especially since the U.S. has the highest corporate tax rates on the planet. Now, the overall objective of our show is that you pay the personal taxes you owe, but don't pay more in taxes than you need to. Key message you'll want to listen for is that you can control the amount you owe in taxes with the proper knowledge and planning. And by the way, that's consistent with our mission to help you increase your knowledge, which of course is the N in wealth, DNA. During the show, we'll discuss U.S. tax laws, both the negative and positive aspects. We'll focus on tax strategy, in other, ways, in other words, ways to manage your taxes. Incidentally, many of these topics and techniques will be very similar in other countries, especially if we stay at the strategic level. Now, the most notable exceptions I can think of are the countries with a flat tax rate. So the more you take advantage of tax management today, the less likely you'll be a supporter of switching to a flat tax rate. Now, the two reasons I'll focus on strategy that rather than the exact rules and thresholds, first of all, by sharing all the details, we won't have enough time to cover the broad range of topics we've planned. Secondly, the detailed rules and thresholds change slightly, very often. Most of the basic concepts were true in 1994 as they are in 2014, and very likely will continue to be in 2024 and 2034. Now, I should share a disclaimer, which I very seldom do, but I thought it might be fun for this topic. I'm not a CPA nor tax attorney with sufficient knowledge of your personal financial situation to be able to recommend particular strategies for you. I do not work for the IRS, nor have I ever worked for the IRS, and none of my emails have mysteriously disappeared. I'm also not a lawyer, never played a lawyer on television, nor am I a judge, nor played a judge on television. Therefore, the information shared on this show should be used to stimulate your development of a tax strategy after reviewing the appropriateness in your situation and the relevant tax laws. Now, aren't you glad I don't read something like that for each of our shows? Now, incidentally, I'll also be using the term loophole fairly loosely, You see, any technique that allows one taxpayer, hopefully you, to pay less than your neighbor can be considered a loophole. The term seems to imply it's illegal or at least unethical. I use it loosely to get used to the idea that a little tax knowledge and planning just might save you money. Let me share our general roadmap for today's trip down income tax lane. And that's not Lois Lane. Uh, First of all, we'll be defining what tax rates are in a few words on Social Security income. Very few words. Share some simple tips. Second, thirdly, we'll talk about filing taxes after the deadline. Fourth, we'll focus on the number one lesson you read in Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Millions of people have read the book and even have a copy on their bookshelf or in their audio files, but only a few thousand have implemented the great recommendations in that book. Yes, I did do a critique of the book back in October of 2014 on the Wealth DNA radio show. I should have asked Sharon Lecter's opinion on that particular show. Now, fifth, we'll be talking about my favorite tax loophole. Sixth, we'll be having, uh, why having more taxable income might make sense, and this one you'll find kind of fun. Seventh, the magic of multiple 
IRAs, and number eight, putting it all together. All right, let's jump into Social Security. Now, this, of course, is a topic that consume five shows and would not be of interest to most of our listeners outside the U.S., since the rules are very specific in the U.S. I'll remind you of the show we had with Brian Ginter in February of 2014. Well worth listening or re-listening to that show to fully understand the comments that I'll be making next. I'll share some key points from my discussing tax strategy with some of BI Solutions investors who are collecting Social Security and others who are subject to self-employment tax, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. But 85% of your Social Security income is taxable. When I happened to be in Brian Ginter's seminar when I met him, and 50 or more people at that uh, session were nearing retirement age. I was the only person who knew that. So let me repeat that. Up to 85% of your Social Security income is taxable. The amount of tax is driven by your overall taxable income. The more you earn over a particular threshold, the higher percentage of your Social Security income is taxed. And therefore, if we take two U.S. taxpayers in the 25% marginal tax rate, tax bracket, let's call it that, one with some of it coming from Social Security, and another one who is not getting income from Social Security, they will have different marginal tax rates. Okay, some of you think I just lost my marbles. Since I just said they're both in the 25% marginal tax bracket, how can they have two different marginal tax rates? Well, that's the point I'm trying to make. So let's explain it. Let's go back to the very basics. What is our marginal tax rate? It's the tax we pay on $1 of additional income, right? And likewise, it's the amount our taxes decrease for each additional dollar of deductions. If you're using tax software or tax preparer, it's easy to just add $100 of income somewhere on your tax return, which already brings up the point I'm trying to make. By the way, if you used a dollar instead of $100, it would be distorted because most taxers are rounded to the next dollar. But if you add that $100 to the wages or interest you earned, it will give you a pretty accurate marginal tax rate. If you add that $100 to dividends you earned or capital gains, they may be subject to a different tax rate. If you add the $100 um, to um, income, let's say business income, you may also be subjected to additional self-employment tax. And that's distorting, well, actually increasing your marginal tax rate. And that's the point. That same effect I just mentioned with self-employment tax is what occurs with Social Security income if you're already over the threshold for some of it being taxed. So a person drawing Social Security, that $100 of additional income may trigger more tax on their Social Security income, so the tax gets added to their marginal tax rate. And I should have... I'm going to have my mute button here handy because I'm feeling my throat uh, clogging up here a little bit, so just bear with me one second. Good. Hopefully that all works pretty well. should have that ready. For some reason, my uh, throat dries out after talking for uh, an hour straight. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. Now, if you're doing your taxes manually, you may need to just increase the bottom line taxable income $100 and compute the additional tax due. Unless you have a very straightforward tax return, I do highly recommend using tax software, which is a small annual cost for the software and tax deductible, or a tax preparer as a second best option. Now, I prefer to do my own taxes since it gives me a much better feel for what I can do to decrease my tax liability, and it forces me to stay abreast of changes that affect me. Now, If you use the same software year after year, this is a sales point. I make absolutely no money on tax software, by the way. Your personal information is automatically transferred, and you get a year-over-year comparison automatically. Now, if you need to do just one amended return, which I just did a few months ago, it will convince you how much time you save by having the original return done with that software. So, 
some people I've known that uh, had to do amended returns went back and put their uh, manual return into software just to be able to do the amendment. It really does save a lot of time. And then, of course, once they realized how much time that saves, they just switched to using software. Just a reminder, you can't compute the effective tax rate until you're finished with your return. Rather than tax on an extra dollar or $100 of income, it's the total tax divided by total income. And again, someone with straightforward income like wages, interest, dividends, and Social Security income, and even IRA withdrawals or conversions, it's pretty easy to compute. All the figures on the first page of the tax form, and all you have to do is divide that into the tax you paid. But if you have business income, real estate income, foreign earned income, and other complications, you may have to get those amounts. Well, you will have to. Forget about half. You may have to. You will have to get those income amounts from other forms. So computing your total income is actually not so simple. Now, even though the marginal tax rate for an extra dollar earned may be higher for someone with Social Security income that we just talked about, the effective tax rate might actually be lower since some portion of that Social Security isn't taxed, but it is part of your total income. If any of that sounds confusing, then the bottom line is this. If you haven't computed your marginal effective tax rates in the last few years, I suggest you take a few hours to pull out the returns and do those computations. Maybe the upcoming Thanksgiving weekend in the U.S. will be a perfect time. By the way, managing your taxes is much like planning a trip. You can't pick the best route on your trip if you don't know your starting point. Likewise, with your taxes. I've talked to many seniors who were being persuaded to invest in tax-free municipal bonds to save on taxes. Sounds like a great idea, right? When I ask about or look at their tax returns, I see they're not paying taxes and therefore would be giving up yield and no tax benefit. For that matter, they might even get themselves into paying AMT, alternative minimum tax, which one of our prior guests, Jason Slade, refers to as the angry mean tax. I like that. AMT was originally designed to make sure that the top 1% of wealthiest individuals are paying some tax regardless of the number of loopholes they take advantage of. Incidentally, tax-free bonds are included in those loopholes. And today it probably applies, this AMT probably applies to about 25% of the taxpayers, which means many in the middle class are subject to AMT. Maybe that's what the government refers to as sharing the wealth. Let's move on now to our second top share some simple tips. This is where you'll want to take some notes if you weren't already. Sell stocks with a loss. Okay, that's one of the most obvious, especially those in bankruptcy that need to be sold in the tax year to take the loss on this year's return. Just let your broker know you want to dispose of them. Now if they're in a bankruptcy, you might want to add at any price. Similarly, if you have some assets you're no longer using and therefore can't depreciate, sell or donate them this year so you can take the deduction. If you're not sure how to officially document the fact that you sold them, even a written sales agreement with a friend, but not your spouse, for a dollar or even 50 cents will suffice. But there is a downside. If you have a tax loss carry forward, and you don't have a lot of capital gains, those extra tax losses may not impact your tax for the year. You see, with capital gains, you can only deduct as much as you have gains plus an additional $3,000. And that $3,000 has been pretty steady is why I'm mentioning a specific number. While we're thinking about having more after-tax income, how about doing some house cleaning before New Year and donating some of the shoes you no longer wear? Yes, my wife's collection inspired that thought. Or maybe clothes you haven't worn for a year or two, possibly because they no longer fit since you haven't stuck with your New Year's resolutions. So what a way to prepare for this coming New Year. And how about those extra furniture pieces and lamps taking up your parking space in the garage? I occasionally wonder why neighbors have $1,000 of junk safely locked in the garage and a $30,000 automobile or two standing on the driveway. By the way, a driveway is what the name implies. It's the path to drive your car into the garage. Otherwise, we'd be calling it a parking lot. But I won't comment on why we call some roads parkways. That just doesn't make any sense at all. 
Now, if you think your tax rate will be lower next year, maybe because of retirement or lower bonuses, then you'll want to postpone income and accelerate deductions this year. So you pay less in a higher tax rate and then allow some of that income or deductions that you might have taken next year to be used this year against your higher taxes. Now, if you don't have a business, there isn't too much you can do other than these areas. One is increase your IRA or 401k deductions, and you've got to do that pretty quickly. Uh, putting more into your HSA, again, and this is your health savings account, again, you've got um, you know, a short period of time to take care of it, but still enough time. So if you haven't fully funded an HSA you have or an IRA, do it. 401k, of course, you have to do during the calendar year. Uh, how about paying some property taxes early? additional charitable donations, or prepaying deductible expenses, like buying tax software before your end. One more not-so-simple strategy is to refinance your home. If you've had your mortgage for a number of years, refinancing will lead to a higher percentage of your payment being interest in the first few years, and that interest, of course, is deductible. With the current state of lending, you'd better budget six months for the process so it won't affect you until next year. But if you're going to have higher taxes next year, why not take advantage of it? Now, as regular listeners know, uh, I like this strategy since mortgages are cheap OPM. And there you go. My screen just locked since I've been talking, not paying attention to the chat window. Let's get that back up. So anyway, mortgages are a cheap uh, OPM, and if you're able to refinance more than your old loan, called a cash-out refinance, you can invest that money and earn far more than it costs you. Go back and listen to our first show on OPM in July of 2013, and since I used that term here a couple times, I should remind you OPM has nothing to do with the illegal drugs. It's the acronym for other people's money. Now, let me remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naranke. I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. Our sponsor today is BI Solutions Corp., a residential real estate fund in the Phoenix-Scottsdale area. If you missed some of the prior shows or if you want to re-listen to them, we maintain an archive of shows on wealthdna.us. Now, if you'd like to get an email reminder of each of the shows, send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us. DNA.us. Again, ron at wealthdna.us will keep you posted about future shows and events. Now, a reminder during the show, we welcome you, our listeners, to ask questions or make comments. The easiest by far, especially with the number of topics, is to use the chat area below the radio player, and I can feed in your comments or questions in the appropriate place. You can also call in 917-388-4162. You'll see that at the top of the screen. Our topic today is tax strategies for year-end. Now, the most important tip among our simple tips, if you don't already have a company for your business and investing activities, start one. A lot more on this topic very shortly. And an overlooked topic, very often overlooked, don't lend money to the IRS or any other tax authority interest-free. In these periods of low interest rates, it may not seem like a big deal. But why not invest that same money instead of tax-free? Put it in short-term debt earning, somewhere between half a percent and five and a half percent, depending on your knowledge of what's out there, like private mortgage loans. And I'll refer you to our show on Learn to Earn, a Higher Return, in the summer of 2012. Then the money will be available to make your payment for the tax deadline. While we're talking about not paying too much and too early, I'll remind you that you need to pay an estimated amount by the normal filing deadline to avoid late payment penalties, which can be very expensive. Ask me. I know. To avoid those costs, know the rules for avoiding penalties and interest. Generally, if you pay at least 90 or 100% of your prior year's taxes, you'll be exempt from penalties, even if your taxable income is much higher this year. And even the IRS understands that some people's income can fluctuate pretty dramatically if they've not earning a standard salary. Just even bonuses or having a business can dramatically shift your income from year to year. Because I have complicated tax returns and way more work than I have hours in a day, I'm generally filing the last possible moment. 
And it turns out what I've been doing by necessity probably is the right thing to do strategically. Let me share 15 tips for why you should file an extension and uh, file your taxes later. This list is thanks to Stefan Brewer. He is a CPA and a CTRS. Number one, you still haven't received some of your K-1s, 1099s, or other documents needed to accurately prepare your return. Number two, you didn't receive some of the letters confirming charitable contributions that required to be in your possession by the due date of your tax return. Number three, there's a pending litigation or tax audit. Reporting certain transactions might prejudice your position or your awaiting resolution, which might affect an item on this year's return. Number four, you might want to reverse a 2013 IRA conversion to a Roth IRA and would rather not file by April 15th, so an amended return would not be necessary if you decide to reverse the conversion by October 15th, the later deadline. More on this later in the show, a key topic. Number five, circumstances may have prohibited you from assembling all your information properly. This might include searching for tax bases for uh, tax uh, for tax bases of your securities or assets that have been sold. You just don't remember how much you paid for them. Probably be better if you did them electronically. By the way, uh, number six. Clearly, in my case, you have a complicated situation. You feel it's best to have an extension so you or your preparer would have more time to devote to your tax return and feel less rushed. Number seven. You might want to open and or fund a SEP pension plan. By extending, you'll have until October 15th to make your decision. If you have a KEO, 401k, or simple plan, the contribution can be made up until the extended date. And again, here we're getting the specific tax rules and when you have to have them established. And there are some crazy and inconsistent rules on when you have to establish that IRA or KEO. They are two, two different things. You didn't file last year's return. You feel that filing this year's return because of, uh, before the prior year will cause extra IRS attention to you. Okay. Uh, however, whatever you do, uh, do, if you didn't file, make sure, um, if you didn't file this year's return time, make sure you file it by the extended due date. Uh, those with a 2013 installment sale might want to wait as long as possible in 2014 to consider electing out of the installment sale if your taxable income is expected to be substantially lower in 2014. I'm sorry, lower than 2014. So again, depending on uh, what your tax rates change, uh, and then you have more time to you know to really know what your uh, next tax rate is if you wait more months. Number 10, people with net operating uh, income or not operating losses can be carried back, might want to, he actually had a typo on that one, people with net operating losses that can be carried back might want to delay to determine if they should elect to forego that and carry it forward instead. This extension can delay elections that are not made on the first filed tax return. That's when you make your uh, your decision. The extension is for a gift tax return where not all the issues are clear, including generation skipping elections, spousal consents, or the basis information is not readily available, or discount valuations are not completed. So gift tax can be a complication that wakes, you know, causes you to delay. Number 13, there's a high risk of audit. Filing an extension might, listen to this, filing an extension might reduce the chance of an audit. Did you get that key point? Note, it will not lower the chance of a computer-generated notice questioning an item or picking up income that was not reported. Those are the most common forms of audit. If you or the tax preparer is unable to devote the necessary time to get the return ready on, on, on uh, time, they're ready to file on time. Number 15, an error is discovered in a prior year return and additional time is needed to research and correct it. And the current year's return might be affected by the change. And I mentioned 15, but let's go to number 16. I'm batting this based on my experience. If you need to append a amend, oh, append. If you need to amend a prior return, let's say from three years ago, that amendment needs to be filed prior to filing the return for the third tax year after it. So get that amendment done and give yourself some time. So extending might make sense. Now, and this is also from Stefan Brewer. A tip for those filing extensions that also have to pay estimated tax 
include the first quarter estimated tax with the extension payment. In the case where you underestimated your prior year um, extension payment, the added first quarter payment would reduce that penalty. And, by the way, that penalty is greater than the penalty for underestimated taxes for next year. So, in other words, it's in the IRS's bank, and you can count it toward what you've paid. And also, don't forget to file a state extension if necessary. Now, the exception. If you ignored my advice and are expecting a significant refund, then you should file as early as practical. If you get amended 1099s or K1s showing up late, you can always find that, file that amendment. And with tax software, it's not a big deal. But to avoid that hassle, follow my and Stefan Brewer's advice. Do not give the government an interest-free loan. Now, our next topic, having a company for your business and investment activities. And I will tell you, this is one of the top topics I want you to listen to carefully. Recall the general principle was covered well in the first Rich Dad, Poor Dad book, to have a company for your business investment activities. This doesn't mean you quit your job. It's just a matter of taking full advantage of the key difference between personal and business income taxes. A reminder, personal tax is based on gross income. If you earn $100,000, it's taxed for Social Security and Medicare. It's put on the first page of your tax return, and you will pay taxes based on it. Business income is based, uh, business taxes are based on net income. So if you have $100,000 of business income, you don't pay either the the self-employment or income taxes on that. You first deduct all your expenses, which could include interest, equipment, auto expenses, um, office supplies, software, phones, internet, you name it. None or few of those are deductible on a personal return. So after deductions, only the profit is subject to self-employment tax and income tax. Now, if you were wondering, well, but if I have $100 of income, I've got $100,000 of income, I also have personal exemptions, deductions. True, but keep in mind, those same personal exemptions and deductions are applied to either the gross wages or the net profit from your company. If you're not sure, just go through the first page of the tax return, and you'll see that's exactly what's going on. You, uh, Your same deductions are applied to gross personal income or business net profit. Take your pick. The best is to have your wages paid to your company if possible. Next best is to have a little of each wages and business income. By the way, as a business owner, you generally can also deduct your health care premiums. That wasn't that was really a non-issue for me in the past since I was self-insured. Now with the infamous Obamacare, I was forced to start paying for an insurance policy I don't use. But at least, it's a deductible business expense. Now, come to think of it, I need to update my profit forecast for the business since 2014 will be my first full year of having that deduction, which could affect my business profitability. Now, another key element uh, of, uh, really an advantage of business, is the amount that can be put into a retirement account as a business owner versus as an individual. Having your own business provides even more retirement plan deductions than having an employer with a 401k. Note, avoid losses for multiple years. And um, Stefan talked about this a little bit in his 15 points, but I really want to emphasize this point. If if your business um, has losses year after year, three, four, five years, the IRS may view that as a hobby. In other words, you're not really doing this for profit. This is just your hobby and you're deducting expenses. And that's true if you or you and your spouse are the only owners. So do keep that in mind. If you've got multiple year of losses, you're going to have a potential tax problem. They could disallow all of the losses. Now, it's generally not a problem if the company is owned by multiple shareholders even, let's say, if it's owned by you and your grown kids that file a separate tax return. In that case, you'll be filing a separate partnership return or S-corp. Yes, it is extra tax return work and extra work for all the parties receiving the K-1. 
But as long as you're actively involved in the business, you shouldn't have this problem with multiple year losses because you're not able to control all of the business activity by yourself. Now, home office, another aspect of having a business, uh, try taking a home office expense for um, for a person that doesn't have a business. Uh, it's going to be hard to explain. Uh, gee, I use this corner of the room only for filing my tax return, and therefore I want to deduct it in my miscellaneous deductions. It won't fly. But home office for a business will, and you have your own company, so you're able to deduct some of your home or even apartment expenses as a home office. Now, in the old days, this was a red flag for the tax police to audit your tax return. Today, they even set up a simplified calculation to help business people get started. Maybe a few people in government are starting to realize that small businesses are the primary economic engine of growth and employment. Hmm. That would be encouraging, wouldn't it? The key question asked before deciding to take the home office deduction, is this area used exclusively for business and investment purposes? So let me give you a hint. If it's your kitchen or dining room table or the island in your kitchen where you also eat, I think it'll be easy for the tax police to argue that's not used exclusively for business. Now, a few words on starting that company if you haven't already. Most people assume there's going to be a lot of legal and accounting expenses and therefore never set up their business. You can set up a business in your name or as a DBA, that means doing business as name, with virtually no cost. It might cost you $10 to reserve that DBA name. Talk about trivial expenses. Whether you set up this business in your name as a DBA or even set up an LLC owned by you or you and your spouse, it will not require filing a separate tax return. They can all be put on a Schedule C on your personal tax return. And yes, you can have several Schedule Cs for different businesses you own. Guess how I know that. So if the legal and accounting expenses have held you back, you need a new excuse. Remember, your motivation is this, switching from being taxed on gross income to being taxed on net income. That's after deducting all your business expenses. Now, one of the key questions you need to address before filing your first tax return uh, for the business, would it be better to set up the company on a cash or accrual basis? Without becoming a seminar on accounting, let's use one simple example. You have high income this year, and you're on a cash basis. You could hire a consultant uh, this week to prepare or update your business plan or help you with tax planning, but can only deduct the amount you pay her this year. As a good business person, you don't want to pay before the work is done, so the deduction this year may be minimal. If you're on an accrual basis, you sign the contract this year, and thus you've committed to that expense and treat it as an expense this year, albeit accrued. No, this is a two-edged sword. So if the consultant is on an accrual basis, she will need to pay taxes on that revenue, even though you haven't paid yet. So the decision really is dependent on your specific business type and what you're trying to accomplish. Now let's move on to my favorite tax loophole, rental or lease option real estate. In the spring of 2012, we had several shows on the four key real estate investment strategies. And I'll remind you, the first was rental. Second, we affectionately call fix and flip. Thirdly, lease option, and fourth, private mortgage lending. So I'm referring to the first and third strategies as having the key tax advantages. And some of the things you hear sound like they may help you out. Go back and listen to that five or six hours of programming. It was done for your benefit. Now, the tax laws in the U.S. and most companies, countries have favorable tax treatment when you own an investment property that's rented out. In some countries, you may have a lower tax rate on that income. In the U.S. and many other countries, you'll have the ability to deduct all of the expenses related to that managing the property, just as if each property was a special purpose business. And that's essentially how it's filed. Different schedule, but same idea. Think utilities, contractors, tax software, home office expense, car mileage, accounting costs, etc. In addition, you can depreciate the property, which increases your deductible expenses and thus decreases your taxable income, but doesn't require you to spend any cash. You see, depreciation is a non-cash expense for tax purposes. Now, the rationale is simple. 
Properties do gradually wear out or become obsolete, or at least tenants wear them out, which requires maintenance and renovations to continue to earn the same or more rental income. Now, most properties, and I'm always excluding land here, are depreciated using a useful life of between 25 and 30 years, which means you could write off approximately 4% of the property value each year. Now, will that property really be worth $0 at the end of the 30 years? Very unlikely. It's more likely to be worth more than what you paid. Now, on that, uh, that surface, uh, 4% may not seem a lot, but if you have a net income of, let's say, $150 per month on a $100,000 rental property, being able to deduct $4,000 against $1,800 of annual income means the government's actually sub- subsidizing that property for you. You're showing a tax loss even though you had a gain. For those who think this loophole is totally unfair, just think about how high rental rates would be if it wasn't possible. Besides, it would create an unfair disadvantage for the individual landlord versus the apartment complexes owned by large companies who are able to depreciate that property owned by the company. So my advice, rather than complaining about available loopholes, just start taking advantage of them. And this is a great one. Now, by the way, using a simple, uh, single Useful life for the entire, uh, entire property value is this, is simple, and it's the least tax-advantaged method. If you use a tax preparer and don't teach them about cost segregation, that's probably what you'll get. How do you teach them? Well, have them listen to the next little one or two minutes. Again, I want to avoid doing a seminar on real estate accounting today, so let me just share the basic principle of cost segregation. could be useful for you or your tax accountant. You bought the property for $100,000 and got a good deal since it's in need of repairs or maybe it's a foreclosure or a short sale or other distress. The standard is to allocate 20% of your purchase price for land, but I question that in the depressed real estate market. Prior to the Great Recession and the housing crisis, a building lot might sell for $50,000 and the finished property with the land for $250,000, so the land value really was 20% of the purchase price. When the housing market crashed, that same house with the lot could be purchased for 125000 so there's a drop of about 50%. The cost of materials and labor had not dropped that low, and that building lot could now be purchased for $5,000 or less because nobody wanted land. I don't know about your calculator, but on mine, 5 is not 20% of 125 and that's how you would compute the value of the land. Now, in many cases, we've been buying properties and the land is essentially free since the property itself is an intrinsic value, especially when you calculate it from an operating income viewpoint. And that value is far above the entire purchase price, including the land. So for cost segregation, you would do an analysis of the actual value and contents of the property plus renovations you do and break up that total cost into three or four or five components. Land, which is not depreciated, Furniture, carpeting, appliances, and fixtures, which have a relatively short, useful life in a rental property, usually five years, meaning you can depreciate 20% of their value per year. Uh, And by the way, kitchen cabinets are really in that category of uh, furniture, fixture, and appliances. How about durable renovations like tile, partitions, closet, which may have a medium useful life, for example, 10 years. Maintenance expenses like painting, landscaping, light bulbs can be written off in a single year. And then the property itself will be the difference between your cost basis and the value you assigned to the other components. So if you're a person with a high marginal tax rate, taking advantage of this cost segregation can give you a first-year depreciation of 7 to 8% of the property value, thus lowering your taxes. On the other hand, if you have a low tax rate, you may want to stay with the a basic model, and forget about the cost segregation, go with the more conservative 25 to 30-year life for the entire property, of course, minus the land. Go back to my earlier comment, choosing the best route for you depends on your starting point. So know your marginal tax rate. Now, you may be wondering why more people don't take advantage of this loophole. It appears to be very attractive and gets more attractive as you have more properties. And it's all true. There are three key reasons they don't. First of all, their financial advisor told him that investing in stocks and bonds is far safer alternative since they are registered securities. 
Of course, that same financial advisor failed to mention or maybe didn't know that real estate ownership is exempt from securities regulations. Number two, people don't feel like doing the extra work that comes with being a landlord. And chances are, if you're a regular listener, you would have realized there are real estate funds that would allow you to take advantage of real estate ownership without a lot of the extra work. And number three, the biggest reason there are limitations to how much high-income individuals can deduct for expenses related to real estate investments. So that means the people who need deductions most and have the best chance of getting low-cost mortgages, OPM, remember, on those investment properties are often limited or restricted from taking advantage of them. In order to have unlimited deductions, you have to be a real estate professional for tax purposes. Incidentally, that has nothing to do with being a realtor who, for tax purposes, also cannot be a real estate professional. This has status for tax purposes. It has to do with the amount of time you dedicate to these investments. So if you're a doctor or a dentist with a very good income, you have no chance of qualifying as a real estate professional, but maybe your spouse could be that real estate professional in your household. Incidentally, being an active partner or managing member in an LLC which owns the real estate may help you or your spouse to qualify to deduct the expenses on the K-1 issued by that LLC. Now, investing in rental and lease option really can have a significant advantage for reducing your taxes and managing your tax rate, as you'll see more throughout this show. But there is a downside, which I experience when I invest a large portion of my portfolio in the real estate fund with significant depreciation deductions, which is my segue to the next topic. It's also a good time to tell our listeners who just tuned in, you're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm Ron Naraki. If you missed the earlier part of the show, you can listen to the earlier portion on the archive. If you missed prior shows, you can find them on those same archives, wealthdna.us. Our topic today is tax strategies for year-end. Now, on to the next topic, why having more taxable income might make sense. I'm sure several of you are wondering how it's ever possible. Well, let's go back to my case. My company had been running a loss for a number of years due to the difficult years in the housing market since 2007, and the amount of depreciation deductions passed through to me. The good news, that lowered my tax rate. It even made it negative. And taxes were also lower, which led me to study up on some of the techniques we'll cover now. The bad news, it put me at risk of the IRS thinking it's a hobby and disallow hundreds of thousands of dollars of expenses. So that's one situation where having more income in those years would have been very helpful. Another situation is you plan to apply for a larger mortgage or additional mortgages to own more investment real estate, hint, hint, or if you're applying for business financing and will need to personally guarantee it. Even if you have millions or billions of assets, banks look primarily at your credit report, your debt-to-income ratio, and your recent tax returns as the basis for providing that financing. So in the two to three years leading up to that application for financing, it would be helpful to have additional taxable income. So let's add a more subtle example for increasing your taxable income. In the years prior to retiring and drawing on Social Security, and I'm not referring to the minimal effect that higher wages will have on your ultimate ultimate Social Security income, I'm referring to the fact that you may have a lower marginal tax rate prior to drawing Social Security then you will afterwards. If you happen to miss the earlier part of the show when you talked about this, trust me for now, and then go back and listen to that portion. The key point is there are times when having more taxable income will actually be useful, as it was for me in the last 10 years. So what have I done in the past? Let's first cover what I discourage you from doing unless there's no other choice. And that is having tax loss in one or more years and carrying it back or forward to lower the tax in prior years or in future years. Now, the tax laws have improved in recent years with longer time spans that you can go back or forward, but it still should be treated as a last resort. Let me give you four reasons why I don't like this approach. Let's count them down. Number four, if you have foreign earned income, taking some of the past or future loss into the years with foreign earned income will save you nothing. It re- number three, it requires a lot more complicated cash calculations and tax forms. 
Number two, your business may show a loss for more years after carrying the loss forward or backward, giving the tax police more ammunition to disqualify those deductions. And the number one reason, you lose the personal exemption for every year you have tax losses. This last point is mentioned in the hundreds of pages and instructions for the NOL, or not net operating loss, carry forward and carry back, but frankly, I didn't notice them until after filling out the tedious forms. As I recall, the tax software I was using didn't help with the calculation, which spanned many years of tax returns. What are some better options to soak up those tax losses, and what have I done? Another segue to the next topic. The magic of multiple IRAs. In one of our shows several months ago with Teresa Gillard-Ducci, I forewarned you the U.S. and many other countries are looking for ways to eliminate these individual retirement plans as a way to raise taxes and solve the massive massive deficits around the world. And as I recall, I also suggested taking full advantage of these retirement accounts while you still can. And if I didn't say it then, let me say it now. Take full advantage of these retirement accounts while you still can. There are fundamentally two types of retirement plans, the employer-sponsored 401ks and the ones we as individuals or business owners set up refer to them as IRAs, individual retirement accounts. Recall from our recent show on asset protection, these IRAs are legally trust and therefore protected from creditors and bankruptcy, which is kind of like icing on the cake or maybe ice cream or whipped cream you put on your pumpkin pie at Thanksgiving. Furthermore, these retirement plans can be subdivided into either traditional IRAs, mainly tax-deductible contributions, or Roth IRAs, which are not deductible at the time of contribution, but under contract uh, under current excuse me under current tax law, they're tax-free when you withdraw the principal and any gains you have. Now, I use the term traditional IRA and, and Roth IRA, but that also applies to 401ks. You can have the um, traditional 401k or a Roth. 401k. Now, before I get into the magic of having multiple IRAs, I should remind you and any listeners who have 401ks still with prior employers, you're making two serious mistakes. You're paying, number one, you're paying higher fees for administration than you would if you rolled those 401ks into an IRA. And number two, a lot of the flexibility I'll talk about next is not generally available with 401ks. So if you're one of the people who have 401k, uh, have such a 401k, especially with a prior employer, contact the administrator, get it rolled over to an IRA of the same type, whether traditional or Roth. If you have a 401k with a current employer, you should also contact them to see if there's a possibility of doing what's called an in-service withdrawal or rollover. After the funds are fully vested, many plans allow you to do a percentage to roll over each year. Why should you do that rollover? You'll see as I explain the magic. There are three key terms I use in this discussion. I already mentioned the first, a rollover. Roller is simply the transfer of funds from one custodian or administrator to another with no change in tax treatment. So if you had a deductible 401k, you roll it into a traditional IRA. Both are deductible when you contribute and taxed when you withdraw. So no change in tax treatment. Similarly, if you had a Roth-type 401k and you roll it into a Roth IRA, since both are non-deductible when you contribute, tax-free when you withdraw, well, I'll emphasize under the current tax laws. Again, that's a rollover, no change in tax treatment. Now, let's go back to my situation when I was having losses for tax purposes. One of the things I did was convert some of my deductible 401ks with a prior employer to a Roth IRA. A conversion is a transfer from a deductible plan to a non-deductible plan and therefore is a fully taxable event. But there is no early withdrawal penalty if the money goes directly to the new custodian. Now, when I started doing this in 2007 and 2008, it had three big benefits for me. One, it created taxable income, albeit somewhat artificial, but it helped soak up some of my losses. Number two, The stock market was extremely low, and therefore I would be paying taxes on a smaller amount than I would have in prior years I would in future years. And number three, because I had losses, I actually paid a 0% tax rate for that conversion. So in other words, I moved it out of my RA and didn't pay any taxes. 
and now I have it in a Roth that I'll pay no taxes when I withdraw it. How's that for a good tool? Now, because the world was in a major recession, the U.S. government was looking for ways to generate additional tax revenue, they actually made these conversions more attractive. Initially, they put some incentives in place, like spreading the tax over two years and removing the income limit for doing these conversions. With the massive deficits at the time, they decided to make that temporary change uh, a li- temporary change permanent by eliminating that income ceiling. So for the last seven years, anyone could convert money from a deductible plan to a Roth plan. Take advantage of it. In my case, it was an absolute no-brainer to do this, although somebody paying a 35% marginal tax rate might want to visit a psychiatrist as well as a tax advisor before doing such a conversion. Now, as I increased my investment in the real estate fund and therefore had more and more depreciation deductions, I increased the level of my IRA conversions. Now, in 2010, I overdid it. I converted more than I thought I did. I just lost track since I did so many conversions, and all of a sudden I was in a higher tax bracket than I had planned on, which I means I would be, or it meant, and it did mean, I was subject to additional tax as well as interest and penalties for not paying enough at the tax deadline. With that mistake, I paid a lot of money to learn a lesson you are now going to get for free. So learn the lesson from me. Don't make the same mistake. If after doing the conversions you discover you'll be paying more tax than you expected, there's now something called a recharacterization. Crazy word, but recharacterization allows you to reverse some or all of those conversions as if they never happened. Since I was filing after the tax deadline, I made a major mistake by not taking the time to review the details of the tax law or contacting an expert in conversions and recharacterizations. It turns out you can do that recharacterization up until you file your taxes. And note, if you extend your tax deadline, you also extend the period for your recharacterization. God, I wish I knew that in 2010. Had I known it, I would have merely recharacterized some of the converted funds and paid exactly as much as I wanted to. Now, I've learned that expensive lesson. Always, year after year, convert more than I think I need. And then while preparing my tax return, I decide how much to recharacterize depending on my marginal tax rate. It absolutely makes sense for me to take uh, maximum advantage of the 15% tax rate and use up all of that uh, money converting um, funds, and maybe even the 25% tax rate given I expect tax rates to rise and my taxable income to increase as my portfolio increases. Now, for golfers, I have an easy way to explain this recharacterization concept. It's like a mulligan. That could be taken after you've completed the 18th hole. Since you didn't like your score, you merely go back and redo the lousy shots at the 6th hole and maybe the ninth hole as well. That's a recharacterization. Now, I clearly can't tell you that the U.S. government will continue to allow these conversions and recharacterizations forever, but I hope to convert all of my IRA funds to Roth IRAs before they change the rules. Now, if the rules continue longer, I'll rebuild my IRA funds so they have flexibility to do it again in the future. Now, let's put all of these ideas together. I'll use my own businesses, IRAs, and portfolios to help explain how these concepts fit together. Remember what I referred to in prior shows of the financial holy grail of life? That holy grail is to have income for life. The downside of achieving this holy grail, of course, is means you'll be subject to income tax for the rest of your life. So it certainly makes sense to expand your financial literacy to include understanding the income tax rules and managing your taxes over more than just a one-year horizon. I think we can even state that the difference between tax tactics, which is planning for one year, and tax strategy is managing taxes over a longer period of time. The last topic of multiple IRAs is particularly important as you prepare for retirement. Assuming you and your spouse's life expectancy is beyond 75 or 80 years of age, and most people are today, then converting your deductible 401ks and IRAs and drawing tax-free from a Roth account in your early years of retirement, if you need it, and thus postponing drawing Social Security until either your full retirement age or ideally even to 70, which under current uh, Social Security rules is the um, latest, 
might reduce the total amount of taxes you pay overall. That, incidentally, is exactly my plan, since I plan to live to the age of 112, at which time I'm likely to be shot by a jealous husband. Since I've achieved the Holy Grail, that means my portfolio will be passed on to charities and my heirs. And if I manage to move all of it to Roth IRAs, and of course the IRAs have not been eliminated by the government, my heirs would be able to draw on those IRA funds tax-free. Estate planning is a topic for future show or two or three. We won't try to cover the intricate details today. So what are some key points you should have picked up from my situation? Number one, I've created businesses, invested extensively in rental properties, and set up multiple IRAs, allowing to manage my tax rates very effectively. And if you've been using some excuses why you can't use tax deductions to pay for increased IRA or 401k contributions, I'm hoping today's discussion helps you revisit that decision. Just do the calculations. You'll see it's really costing you very little to put more away. So let's try to wrap this all up. Despite what the majority of people tell you, taxes are not one of the guarantees in life. I know of four guarantees, and taxes are not on the list. There's death, computer failures, and the two guarantees that come with bank CDs and U.S. Treasuries. That's on my list of four. And, of course, the two guarantees that come with those bank CDs and U.S. Treasuries is that, number one, you will get the principal and interest promised eventually. That's after deducting the worldwide wealth tax from that amount, and Secondly, the amount you receive is guaranteed to be worth less than what you put in after you factor in taxes and inflation. Those aren't good guarantees. If you haven't talked much about, uh, we haven't uh, yet talked much about the IMF's International Monetary Fund's plan for a wealth tax, but we each need to factor it into projecting the point we achieve the Holy Grail. If they take away 5, 10, or 15% of your assets, how will your retirement plans be affected? And that is part of the game plan. At the beginning, I shared a quote from Will Rogers. The only difference between death and taxes is that death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. I also suggest that you listen for the key message. You can control the amount you owe in taxes with proper knowledge and training. Sorry, knowledge and planning. Knowledge and training, kind of the same thing, right? Proper knowledge and planning, which is consistent with our mission. Help you increase your knowledge, which I reminded you is the N in Wealth DNA. Now, regular listeners of the Wealth DNA radio show also know that our objective here is to help a million people become millionaires. I certainly hope today's show provided some tools to help you return and retain more after-tax income. Don't complain about tax loopholes. Take full advantage of them while they're available. And I also encourage you to take full advantage of IRAs, 401ks, while they're still available, including some of the rollers, rollovers, conversions, and recharacterizations we discussed. It's amazing how the IRS creates words. And remember, one of the best ways to increase your wealth, tune into this show twice a month. We'll share the investment fundamentals, some great ideas, help diversify and grow your portfolio by retaining more of your income after paying taxes. Many thanks to BI Solutions Corp. for sponsoring today's show. They're a residential real estate fund in the Phoenix-Scottsdale area. And by the way, they've helped many investors to reduce taxes and have income for life. The next Wealth DNA Radio Show will be the second Monday of December. That's Monday, December 8th, coming up very quickly, it seems, at 9 a.m. Arizona time. Same place, same time. Our guest will be Angela Totman for the next show in our series on financial literacy called Blame the Schools. So if you didn't learn about personal finance, budgeting, and taxes in school, join us as we commiserate that it's all the fault of our teachers in schools. Now, it may not help, but it will make us feel better. As usual, we provide the lineup of guests and topics on www.wealthdna.us, and there you'll find the archive of past shows. If you have some comments, suggestions, or questions on today's topics, or you haven't received my emails reminding you about the show, send an email to ron at wealthdna.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. Happy investing and minimizing your tax bill.
You've been listening to Wealth DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona Boomer Radio. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com. To reach the Boomer and the Babe, email host at boomerandthebabe.com or friend them on facebook.com slash boomerandbabe. And on Blog Talk, you can friend them at blogtalkradio.com slash boomerandbabe. Follow their tweets at twitter.com slash boomerandbabe. Be sure to make the second half of your life the best half of your life. And remember, at 50, you're just getting started.